Uh, thank you, Braden, for those words about our kids program. It is a, an amazing place to be a part of. And those that you that do serve or have served, you know that as well. Um, it's a continual need that we have. Um, we have up where 70 plus uh, kids in the back on, on an average uh, Sunday. And so um, the need's great. And, and I know it's sometimes a sacrifice to miss out on this part of the service, but um, it allows uh, us to do so much with our kids and for parents to have a chance to, to worship in here and um, have that moment uh, um, without their kids. And I want to highlight one of them. Uh, uh, Billy Woodard stepped up this week and, and helped me out with a project. Um, and I'd love to, for him to stand and do that, but I can't because he's back there holding our babies. And so he's uh, back there, and it's neat to see that. But uh, um, last week, um, some of the guys fell, found a hole in the back parking lot, and there wasn't an end in sight. Um, I hope it was that we would lead to the um, upside down um, and fast forward the Stranger Things series, but it, it didn't. Um, it led to a, a a tree, an old stump, and so I got kind of excited there too because I'm like, man, I could probably sell this to, to Ashley Hackshaw and her craft wizard skills can like sell make this for us. But uh, it, that didn't work either. Um, it crumbled. But anyways, Billy found himself. Um, most of the day Saturday, digging out a hole and then refilling it with uh, stone and uh, concrete. And so thank you to Billy for, uh, for doing that and uh, um, yeah, taking care of that hole so none of us fell in there. Um, great. Thank you. Um, not funny. Um, we are uh, nearing the end of our book, um, not the end of the series. We've been in a book called We Make the Road by Walking. It's a um, book by Brian McLaren. And we started in the middle of the book uh, near Easter time, and it's, it, it's going to take us now um, to the end, but then we'll restart it on chapter one in a couple weeks. And so it'll take us through the Christmas season and into winter. Anyone else excited for winter to come? Yes. Anyone know how many days till Christmas? 135. Very close. Isn't that amazing? I'm so excited. Um, but I don't want to go too far ahead because I don't want to miss my, my favorite season, which is, which is fall. Fall season is my uh, favorite. And we have the fall kickoff um, coming in a few weeks. Um, cinnamon Roll Sunday on September 9th. Amazing time. That's when we have our bakers create these amazing cinnamon rolls. And you invite anyone in the community to come. And everyone gets a cinnamon roll or more than that one. And it's fantastic. And so we're excited about that. Tailgate Party Sunday is coming up in, in October. We all get to get together and um, um, root for Michigan and, and Detroit teams. It's a great time. Um, but uh, but I'm, look, I'm looking forward to this fall. There's a lot of great stuff coming up. And hopefully we'll get to see some of those people that took church off for the summer, right? And they get to come back in September. We set up a lot of altar calls and some confessionals so they can get back with God. Um, I kid, I kid, right? But today, today is an interesting story. Um, we're in chapter 51 of the book. There's 52 chapters. We're in 51. And it's entitled Spirit of Hope. Um, but ironically, the passages, the scripture verses for today's chapter are found in the book Revelation, right? Now, growing up in church for me... Uh, I don't remember being all that into like end times stuff. Like I, I personally wasn't into it, but my church was right. Um, I, my mom was, I know we talked a lot about heaven and hell in our teen, teen groups. Right. And, um, they made us watch horrible movies. Right. And they, we watched these terrifying dramas, um, and skits about hell. Um, at this point, Kirk Cameron was just Mike Seaver. And so none of that had come yet. Um, 
But my guess is that many of you, you, you if you grew up in, uh, as an evangelical, um, you have similar stories in your church history. Like, uh, and I knew that one of the top things that we talked about uh, in church was hell, uh, especially uh, in my childhood. Somebody was going to hell, right? And it might be you or someone else in the church bus on the way home, right? And it, seriously, it made me as a teen never want to get ride the church bus home from any event ever again, right? Like that threat of hell, this eternal punishment, this never-ending torture that was coming. And unfortunately, this threat uh, has been a driving force for uh, much of Christianity. And I believe that it has hijacked the message of Jesus and the Gospels. And so with that today, I want to take a few minutes and look at what the actual message of this last book in our Bible might really be trying to communicate to us today. So watch this video with me real quick. The key to entering into the last book of the Bible, which I think is the best book, is to keep the title very clear. The title is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The, the title is not Revelation, although it is one grand revelation. And the title is not Revelations, although there are many revelations in it. The title is The Revelation of Jesus Christ, which would tell me that the point of the book is a person. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The book is going to be about Jesus Christ. The question is, how are we supposed to understand this little word of? Is it revelation of Jesus Christ in the sense of about Jesus Christ? Or is it revelation of Jesus Christ in the sense by Jesus Christ? Is the revelation by him or is it about him? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it is by him and about him. If we keep this title clear, um, I think we won't lose our way. Um, I think a lot of people get lost uh, because we, we, we get going in some other ways. Though I guess the best way to say that is it, we know we're reading this book faithfully when we end up at the feet of Jesus Christ. If any interpretation of the book, any teaching of the book leads me in another direction, then it's going to be off the marks. Now, uh, the literal title of the book is The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The word revelation is translating this word apocalypsis. And as you know, in our time, apocalypse means, oh no, something really bad is about to happen. But in the first century, that word did not have that meaning. If we were downtown uh, Ephesus or downtown Antioch and we said to somebody, so what do you think apocalypse means? They go, oh, that's a really good word. Apocalypse means breaking through from hiddenness. It's used of um, opening a door or, or lifting a cover or what I like especially, it's used of pulling back of a curtain. An apocalypse is just the revealing of what was behind the curtain so that it can come out. So, the last book of the Bible is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ. In the book, Jesus is pulling back the curtain, opening the door, uh, lifting the cover so that he comes out. Now, the other key to reading this last book of the Bible is to understand um, how apocalyptic literature works. Apocalyptic literature is different than um, wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs or, or, so, or the Psalms. It's different than historical narrative, like First um, uh, and Second Samuel, or, uh, books like that. It's different than the Gospels or the book of Acts. It's different than epistles. 
And apocalyptic literature has two great purposes. The first is to set the present moment in all of its ambiguity and uncertainty, to set the present moment in light of the unseen reality of the future. And the second purpose is to set the present moment in all of its ambiguity and uncertainty in light of the unseen reality of the present. I think most people think more in terms of the first purpose, that we're setting the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future. And the last book of the Bible does that. The great unseen reality of the future is Jesus Christ and his new heaven and new earth. But the major pastoral discipleship emphasis of this book is to take the present moment, see it in light of the unseen reality of the present. And when you keep the title clear, The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ, it tells us that the great unseen reality of the present is a person, Jesus Christ himself, present in every circumstance. So several years ago, I had what I would call a faith crisis, like a a faith identity crisis, this midlife crisis. And instead of going out and buying a Jeep, I started buying books, right? I, I began to become aware that the faith that I had been given as a kid wasn't working uh, anymore as a free thinking adult now. And answers that I had been fed for, for so many years no longer added up. And I began a journey of rethinking some of the things that I believed about God, about Jesus, about the Bible. And for a time, I became frustrated with Scripture. It wasn't making sense. My understanding of what the Bible said wasn't matching uh, my experience with it. And so I started uh, rereading it. And so for a few years now, I've been, you know, going through this journey. What does the Bible say? Uh, Does it say anything? How do I read it? What? Is it, in fact? Uh, where did it come from? Who was it written to? Is it the only way that God communicates to me? And I've come to see the Bible in a, in a whole new way. And now I read it and I interpret it in that new way. And two theologians that have helped me, two of the things that they've said, one is St. Augustine, and I've read this before, but he says, whoever then thinks that he understands Holy Scriptures or any part of them, but puts such an interpretation upon them as does not tend to build up the twofold love of God and of our neighbor does not yet understand them as he ought. Meaning that if my interpretation of scripture doesn't support loving God and loving others, then my interpretation is wrong. Or Martin Luther said that the Old Testament and the New Testament are viewed as swaddling cloth for the baby, Jesus. That when you peel them back, It should reveal the Son of God. I read scripture in the light of knowing who Jesus is. And so if the last book included in this Bible is the unveiling of this Jesus, pulling back the curtain, lifting the sheet, opening the door, well, then who is Jesus? What is being revealed in this book? The revelation of Jesus Christ. What do we know about him? And so if we were to sum up the Gospels with just a couple things, for me, one is, is that Jesus declared that everyone was welcome. That was the first thing Jesus did. 
And we're going to see that it's also the last thing that he does. Invited anybody and everyone to follow him. Anyone who was thirsty. Anyone who could hear to come. And so we need to be a church that welcomes everyone and invites them. And so for us, we say that everyone's welcome at the Grove or into our community. And we expect that there will be tension. That we will be uncomfortable with that. That you're not going to know what to do with that at times. This means that there may be people who don't look like us, or act, dress, smell, talk, worship, or even believe like we do. But we're going to have to work through that. We're going to have to allow space on both sides. A confession, I, I personally struggle with this part of it. I don't necessarily have an issue with someone who, who might look like a mess, right? My tension is with the person who pretends that their mess isn't real. Like they have all their, their junk together and they waste time pointing at others. Doug Hester, some of you know, used to go here. He, he's moved and he said he's moving back. And I'm excited about that because uh, he's a, a great guy, a huge presence, not just because he's big and he's in law enforcement, but he just, his heart is huge. And he has some great things to say. And he, he tells this story about a church that he was at where one Sunday morning, uh, a young woman showed up um, with, uh, with a couple kids in tow and she looked um, maybe that she had been sleeping in the clothes that she showed up in and, and her hair was kind of messy and just maybe not wearing what they thought is proper church attire. And he said one of the, one of the elders stopped her and said to her um, that you need to go home and change. And he also then said, I can smell the alcohol on you. Why don't you sober up, go home and change, then come back next week. And he goes, Doug tells a story that the pastor um, heard about this and he uh, had an encounter then with that elder. And he said, listen, here's the deal. I want to invite you to leave. See, this place was designed and created for women just like her, for people like her who come, who might not have it all together. But for you, it seems that you have it all together, that I'm not worried about your faith or your life or your destination. You look like you got it under control. So you might need to find a new place to worship if you can't accept the other. See, I struggle personally with the Pharisee. But I know Jesus, he, he chose to do community with them still, right? He challenged them. He called them out. He spoke against them, but he still broke bread with them. And so we're, you have to trust that we're trying to create a community where people can explore what a relationship with Jesus looks like as we journey together. The second thing is that uh, Jesus always communicated this message of hope, that anything was possible. And this is why uh, we, we have the churches, because we can offer hope. And it all started with his invitation to belong to community. That we're creating atmospheres of hope for the broken where there's death, we want to help give life. A pastor by the name of Robert Rutherford said this, and you've heard me quote this before. My two worst addictions I've ever had, cocaine and religion. One stole my heart, blurred my mind, took my family, depleted my funds, destroyed my dreams, made me paranoid, and taught me to hide and ruined my life. And the other was a white powdery substance. Religion done wrong can kill. It destroys families, it destroys friendships, and it steals our joy. And I don't know what your church experience has been like. Maybe it's been marked by law and rules and legalism, and, or it's been marked by truth and, and grace and freedom. Maybe it's felt like a prison, or maybe it's felt like an open space to explore. But our job is to love God and love others, 
And that love should compel us to see people not just for who they are today, but who they can become tomorrow. And deep down in all of us, we want to be fully known and fully loved. But we're afraid if we're one, then we won't be the other, right? Like if we're fully known, then people won't love us anymore. Or if they love us, it's because they probably don't really know us. But in Jesus, it says that we're both known and loved. And our job as a church is to give people hope. The church's job is to remind people that they are loved and to give them hope. But then we get to this part of the story, and this is where there are questions that I always don't, I don't have answers to, or maybe the right answers. Where my answers might not be what you were told, or where my responses might not be your response. Or it might not be responses you like or even want to hear. There's a scene in a movie I watched a while back where there was this pastor who was doing this hard work of really looking into scripture and studying these other theologians, trying to get a better understanding of hell and heaven and the afterlife. And he, and he comes to this revelation and he, and he wants to share it. But before he does, he sits down with this, with this other older pastor and he asks him, well, what should I do? And the more experienced pastor says to him, you see, most church people come to church to hear what they already know. And if you show up with this, he says, this 200-watt light bulb, and you start bringing light to all these things, uh, things that we don't want illuminated, it might scare people away. You see, we're just fine with that little light in the back of the refrigerator. It's just enough light. It's always there when I need it. And when I don't need it, I don't even think about it. And so when we come across pieces of our faith tradition that we're unsure about, or we begin to question our faith, questions that we struggle with the answer we can't seem to agree upon. Maybe the reason some of us are uncomfortable with, without clear answers is because that creates tension. Some of us, we like that itty-bitty light in the refrigerator, right? We don't want that 200-watt light bulb. Because if we were honest, church for some of us is just a place to come and hang out a hobby, a social club, a place we might get fed or, or we might find a bunch of people just like me. We might fill out a, a church attendance record. We don't want it being messed up, being challenged by things that we've always believed. I, I want to become and seen, that's it. But church should be a place where we invite all people to explore what a relationship with God looks like. But to ask questions and to doubt and to, to wonder and to, to wait and seek and read and, 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 and to be okay without answers. But the invitation has to be for everyone. And Jesus was unbelievably comfortable being around people who, who did not have the same values, who did not have the same morals, who did not have the same beliefs or smell, act, talk, look like a Christian. Jesus was comfortable with that tension. In fact, he even created it. And so maybe you have doubts and questions and huge questions about God and, and faith and life. And you truly believe that if, if people here knew that, well, they might not be comfortable around you anymore. Or they might already know that about you and they're already uncomfortable. And, and, they, and you believe that they don't want you here. Truth is, is that Jesus would not be put off by that. Your doubts and your questions. But he would be unbelievably comfortable being around you. And the invitation to follow him is for all. That he's inviting us into this relationship with him, this new way of living. And so that's what I want to happen. I want to create a community where we allow space for the tension. And this is not a new message you've heard me 
speak. This is a message that I want to keep repeating to you until we get this and we understand this. That if you're looking for a community where everyone thinks alike, votes the same way, dresses the same way, believes the same way, acts the same way, or in other words, everyone is just like you, it probably won't be the place for you long term. We must create environments where, where people can belong before they believe, where they can have doubts and questions and maybe not see everything the same way you do. In the essentials, we need unity. But in those non-essentials, there's liberty. And in all of that, love. I think that was Jesus' design for community. This place needs to be a place where people think differently, believe differently, act differently, where we understand that the invitation to follow Jesus was for everyone. But it's why church is often messy. And I'm okay with messy, but we must follow Jesus' example. And here today is one of the topics that create that tension. Nothing has worked more coercively in the church than the message of hell and eternal torture. How many of you have visited an altar or two to escape that future in your life? Jody shared that last week, many times, right? The message for me as a teenager was, come to Jesus and escape hell. Turn or burn. The issue for us as a church is, well, there are many competing narratives, competing stories when it comes to how you and I Imagine what hell is like, or if it even exists at all. Church history is full of competing views, thoughts, beliefs, and many of us get caught up in that. I've told you before about my baggage from from my church as a teenager. The, The idea of hell was something I struggled with. The idea that people who made a bad decision or grew up without even knowing God would end up in eternal conscious torture. That didn't make sense to me. But I want to make something very clear this morning. That regardless of what you think hell is, a place, a location, a state of being, no matter how you imagine it, Jesus is against it. Jesus stands against hell and he offers this new alternative, this new way of living to to be in the world. And nowhere in the Gospels does it say that Jesus is sending anyone to hell. What he does is he warns us about living in such a way that removes ourselves from God's presence. That we isolate ourselves from God and find ourselves in our own living hell. And the good news, the good, the gospel message is that Jesus, our God, offers hope and life. That we may have conflicting views of hell. And if I were to stop and ask us all to kind of draw a picture, describe it, I think we'd be all over the spectrum here. But if there's one thing that we can come together, I think it's this. That Jesus is not for it. I believe that we can all unite on that. That you and I are invited to embrace this life and to embody that hope. That no matter where someone is, no matter how much darkness there is, that they can see Jesus as a liberator. Where Revelation calls Jesus the bright morning star. That when the night is at its darkest... The morning star appears to remind us that the light is winning. The gospel is the good news. It's a message of victory. 
But when I think about the message of hell and what Jesus said about it, uh, for me, it always takes me back to the story in Matthew 25. It's the story of the sheep and goats. And most of you are familiar with it. Have you ever wondered which one you were, right? You know, am I, I'm definitely a sheep. Uh, those people, those are the goats, right? I've never met a Calvinist who didn't think they were one of the elect. And I never met an evangelical who didn't think they were one of the sheep, right? We're all sheep. None of us are goats. But let's read this in Matthew 25. Starting in verse 31. It says, when he finally arrives, blazing in beauty and all of his angels with him, the Son of Man will take his place on the glorious throne. Then all the nations will be arranged before him, and he will sort the people out, much as a shepherd sorts out sheep and goats, putting sheep to his right and goats to his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Enter, you who are blessed by my Father. Take what's coming to you in this kingdom. It's been ready for you since the world's foundation, and here's why. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was homeless and you gave me a room. I was shivering and you gave me clothes. I was sick and you stopped to visit and I was in prison and you came to me. Then those sheep are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we ever see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will say, I'm telling you the solemn truth. Whenever you did one of these to the, someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. And then he will turn to the goats, the ones on his left, and say, Get out, worthless goats. You are good for nothing but the fires of hell. And, and why? Well, because I was hungry and you gave me no meal. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was homeless and you gave me no bed. I was shivering and you gave me no clothes. I was sick and in prison and you never visited then the goats are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or homeless or shivering or sick or in prison and didn't help? And he will answer them until telling the solemn truth. Whenever you fail to do one of these things to someone who was being overlooked or ignored, that was me. You failed to do it to me. Then those goats will be herded to the eternal doom, but the sheep to the eternal reward. Side note, I don't know if you noticed there, but not a single one of those sins that we spend all our time worrying about or arguing about wasn't even mentioned in there, right? The only thing mentioned was how we treat others in our culture. Like this, this is a big piece of our story. See, neither group of people knew what they were doing. Like, when did we see you naked? He said, when did we see you thirsty? And the only difference between the two groups of people is what they did or did not do. Richard Rohr calls this salvation by accident, right? See, neither side knew what they were doing. They were just doing it. It was an act of pure love that was pleasing to God. It was people who might not even know God, treating others better than those who claim to know God. When did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? He says, when you do it to them, you do it to me. When you find Christ in the ones we're trying to give Christ to. What you do to them, you do to me. Jesus says there is this moral equivalency. That Jesus and the other are the same. And what you do to the one, you do to the other. And after all these years, we still don't believe it, right? On Sunday mornings we do. But look how we treat others in our community or in this country or in, on social media. 
Look how we allow ourselves to be divided. We're taught to hate groups of people based on skin color. Still, gender, race, religion, sexuality. When you are consumed with self, you are not thinking about the other. And that takes you further from God's presence, which is hell. Not just a future experience, but something you can experience now. And it can affect those around you. And Jesus is not condemning anyone in those places, but instead he's inviting them to life. You and I, we were created to be in community. That is the core of our identity. Relationship with God, relationship with others, relationship with creation. The closer we are to these, the more we live and participate in heaven on earth. But the opposite is true. The further we pull away and we isolate ourselves, the closer we are to hell. And tragically, it seems that even though Jesus has given us a way to avoid this and how to live now, instead of doing that, we just sit around stunned and afraid of God's wrath, right? We spend countless hours worrying about how this is going to end. How do we interpret the book of Revelation, right? Where am I going to end up? And who's in and who's out? And, oh, and we no longer care for those around us. We become self-absorbed, self-centered, and we quit inviting people to a new way of living. And even more tragic, we quit living a new life ourselves. And McLaren says in his book, if we keep reading Revelation as a roadmap to a predetermined future, the consequences can be disastrous, sorry. For example, he says, we may read the vision of Jesus coming on a white horse in Revelation 19 and think that's about a Jesus completely different from the one we met in the Gospels. That this Jesus won't be a peace-loving guy anymore, but a violence and revenge guy. We might ha- oh, what might happen if we leave the peace and love Jesus in the past and follow a violence and revenge Jesus in the future? We may read about people being thrown into a lake of fire at the end of Revelation. And if we take that literally, we may see God as some kind of sadistic torturer. If God tortures for eternity, might it be okay for us to do that same thing in our next war or our political upheaval? Or if we interpret Revelation 21 literally, where it makes it sound like earth as we know it will be destroyed, we may begin to think God is going to destroy the world anyway, so we might as well help, right? And all of a sudden, we stop caring about overconsumption, environmental destruction, or or, or climate change. So people who read Revelation without understanding the context tend to miss something telling, some telling details. For example, when Jesus rides in on a white horse... His robes are blood-stained, and he carries a sword. Many have interpreted this scene as, a, uh, as, as Jesus, this, the non-violence in the Gospels. But they miss the fact that he carries his sword in his mouth and not his hand. Instead of predicting the return of a killer Messiah in the future, Revelation recalls the day in the past when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. That his humble words of peace, love, and justice, real, Revelation promises, prove more powerful than the bloody swords of violent emperors. In addition, we notice his robe is bloodstained before the battle begins, suggesting that the blood on his robe is not the blood of his enemies, but of his own. 
shed in self-giving love. And in that light, Revelation reinforces rather than overturns the picture we have of Jesus in the Gospels. So here's the point for me. For the revelation of Jesus Christ, the 66th book of the Bible, for Matthew 25, the story here of sheep and goats, and for the other Gospels, is that when Jesus uses this language of hell there in Matthew 25, I don't think he's referring to an eternal torture. I think Jesus is warning us. I think he's saying that your actions have eternal consequences. Like it matters what you do. And the only difference between the sheep and the goats is what they did or did not do. Jesus is saying that it matters. That you're going to live a life of love or live a life of selfishness. And he says, don't take the risk. That God's character is revealed in the story. That Jesus cares about the least of these. That his love for others is what defined him. Love that, love the ones that you can't pay back. Love the kind of people that only pure love for others can allow or even motivate us. That is the law of freedom. Being able to love people for no other reason but to love them. Not because of a threat of, of hell. When did we see you naked, hungry, thirsty, or in prison? See, they didn't know it was Jesus. The kingdom of God is when we love others without conditions. When we love others not for a reward or for eternal insurance, but we love others because it's the truth. That you and I were made to love, made to live in love. That is our true identity. And we spend so much time worrying about stuff Jesus doesn't even focus on, right? I think Jesus is trying to tell us something here that the point is about loving others. That's the meaning of life. Invitation into life, not a threat of eternal punishment. You can't let that destroy your image of God because God is love. A life lived in love has eternal consequences. And to refuse to not love others, it would seem that that might lead to death. Hell on earth, hell later, whatever hell is for you. And it's amazing how clear the message seems to be how little impact it has on us. How little we do taking care of the poor or visiting prisoners or clothing the naked. How you and I live matters. And there are two ways to eliminate your enemies. We can kill them or we can love them, which includes forgiving them, inviting them in. The immigrant, the outsider, the poor, the broken, There are a lot of goats out there, people who don't care, who don't love. And some people will claim to love God and they'll turn around and they'll hate people for nothing more than the color of their skin. That reveals the true character. Richard Rohr also said this in an interview, asked about his thoughts on hell. He says he doesn't get why American evangelicals are so obsessed with hell. He says he gets more questions about hell than from anyone else. He says he finds it very disturbing That we are so fixated on who is going to hell. What it's going to be like in hell. How hot would it be? What a horrible place it would be to go. And at the same time, drop bombs on people. And do a lot to make other people's lives hell. Church, it's time we told the truth. That we're to share the love of God. That Jesus is the giver of life, peace, and hope. And he demonstrates it by 
giving of himself and not removing himself from us. There are many competing narratives to this story of heaven and hell. But I'm not interested in a message that is wrapped up fully in just saving people from hell. Some places, that's the message. Some places you go, that's the message because it has to be. Because their image of God is a God who wants to send people there. And so they better save those people. But whatever you believe about hell and who goes there, or if anyone goes there, or if it exists now or in the future, God doesn't choose to send anyone there. Instead, offers a new way of life. And that is our hope. And how we live and treat each other matters. See, the final book in the Bible is way too often associated with the word fear. But what I want you to hear this morning is the word hope. That the revelation of Jesus Christ is not a book that should be used as a method to scare people into following Jesus, but a compelling message of hope. That although the present seems dark, when it's at its darkness, Jesus is there as the bright morning star to remind us that the light is winning. And his invitation is to come and follow him. The last book of the Bible is my favorite book because in this book we get the, the most compelling, uh, most invigorating, <laughs> even as I say that I can feel it, uh, a most grand vision of who Jesus Christ is. Uh, Eugene Peterson says, uh, we don't learn anything new about uh, the gospel or Jesus in the last book of the Bible. It's all there in the other 65 books, but we learn it in a new way. So we see what's been revealed to us in the other books, but now we see it in a bigger, grander, more compelling, more arresting way. Compelling that the book shows that Jesus Christ is at the center of everything. In fact, when you read the book, you want to watch for that phrase, in the middle of. He's in the middle of everything. He's in the middle of the seven golden lampstands, which are the picture of the seven churches. That makes sense. He's in the middle of the church. But in chapter 5, he's also in the middle of the great almighty who sits on the throne. Um, the way it works is John is, is, is lamenting the fact that nobody can open this scroll of history. The, the, the picture is this uh, papyrus that's been wrapped up and it's got uh, seals on it, seven seals, and nobody can open it. And he's lamenting, he's crying out, why is this the case? And an angel says, oh, don't worry, the lion of the tribe of, the Judah, of Judah has overcome and he can open the scroll. And so John turns, thinking he's going to see a lion, and instead he sees a lamb as if slain, and then John says, in the very middle of the throne. Um, it can only mean that he's in the very middle of the almighty God who sits on the throne. So the compelling picture is that this sacrifice, uh, is apparently weak, uh, apparently um, almost uh, a stupid acts of giving one's life for the life of the world, this turns out to be the very center of everything. And um, it, it's the source of the power and wisdom of God in the world. Probably one of the most uh, invigorating and comforting pictures of Jesus Christ we're given is the last thing he says in the book. He says, I am the bright morning star. Uh, that image... Um, ministered to me deeply during a, a time of, of, um, of severe despair and depression. 
The morning star is the star that appears in the night when the night has reached its deepest level of darkness. It's still dark when you see the morning light. Uh, but, but when the morning, when the morning star appears, uh, someone has said, you know that though it is still dark, the morning is coming. Night has reached its greatest level of darkness. And so when Jesus says, I am the bright morning star, it's the last thing he says to us. It's his way of saying, it's as dark as it's going to get. And even though you might have to live in darkness for a while, the fact that I appeared proves that, that the morning is going to come. Um, that I'm going to bring the kingdom in behind me. And as soon, and very soon, um, the light is going to break through. That image of the bright morning star, uh, I think, has sustained the church through so much uh, struggle and so much pain. Yeah, you don't think of Revelation as sustaining through pain, you just think fear. Revelation 22, verses 16 and 17 says, I, Jesus, sent my angel to testify to these things for the churches. That I am the root and branch of David, the bright morning star. Come, say the spirit and the bride. Whoever hears echo, come. Is anyone thirsty? Come. All who will come and drink, drink freely of the water of life. It says what was true for Revelation's original audience is true for us today. That whatever madman is in power, whatever chaos is breaking out, Whatever danger threatens, the river of life is flowing now. The tree of life is bearing fruit now. True aliveness is available now. That's what revelations end with the sound of a single word echoing through the universe. The word is not wait, nor is it not yet or someday. It is a word of invitation, of welcome, reception, hospitality, and possibility. It is a word not of ending, but of new beginning. That word, that one word is come. The Spirit says it to us and we echo it back. Together with the Spirit, we say it to everyone who is willing to come. God, go with us today. May you be on our hearts and our minds. May your word impact us throughout the week. May we carry the responsibility of knowing that our life matters and what we do with our life matters. You've empowered us, you've blessed us, you've given to us to give back. May we spend our week loving you and loving others. In your name we pray, amen. We'll see you guys next week. 